up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheen, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Marniswagger. Dave, how was your Memorial Day? Uh, good. This is where the fun begins. It was good. Summertime. Uh, yes, yes indeed. It's hot. Everything litty. It's hot. It is very hot. Um, and you know what else is hot? This content we're, we're pumping out, so follow at Nostalgia Pod on twitter also hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod and go to spotify and follow our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist stay plug in dave star wars celebration happened this past weekend i want you to give me your top three oh gosh news items from from this mm. uh thing because I, I mean for me I, I was like kind of tuning in and out but I was like, I know Dave's going to have at least a couple of things that he's pulling away that he's like super stoked about. Uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great prompt because there was many news items. I wasn't actually sure if it was worth checking in on Star Wars Celebration 2022, the first Star Wars Celebration uh, since the pandemic. Just because I wasn't sure how much uh, consequential news there would be, but there actually was a lot. Uh, a lot of it is more to be expected stuff we knew was coming out release dates, trailers, things like that, and or trailer out August 31st. The show's coming out. Mando Season 3, February 2023. Bad Batch Season 2, Fall 2022. Ahsoka 2023. Things we knew or at least had uh, those ideas about. Mm-hmm. Andor trailer looks great. And uh, Andor going up against She-Hulk, House of the Dragon, and <laughs> Lord of the Rings from Amazon. That's going to be a wild few weeks. August um, is going to be crazy. August and September. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nuts. But, uh, yeah, so in terms of, like, things that are uh, more surprises or, or uh, you know, newsy, uh, I would say the Tales of the Jedi anthology animated series that got announced coming out this uh, this year, late 2022, uh, on Disney+, Plus, of course, basically a continuation of the Clone Wars animation style, but a two-part anthology series reflecting on prequel Jedi based around Ahsoka and Dooku are these two parts, but it sounds like we're going to hear Liam Neeson's Qui-Gon Jinn in there, Mm -hmm. and obviously the Dooku side of things, and uh, plenty of other names were thrown about, so that that sounds cool. Um, Similar to, I guess, Star Wars Visions from last year, there was no announcement of uh, more Star Wars Visions, which I was definitely looking forward to hearing about, but Regardless, uh, an anthology series like this uh, is kind of in the same vein, and this this would be of the can variety, of course, but uh, I think just kind of exciting to kind of get more. I feel like for Clone Wars fans, this is a, a particular delight just because it's kind of kind of feel like more Clone Wars because it's just kind of more prequel era stuff on TV, so uh, hard to be mad about it. Yeah, um, I think there's definitely some really exciting news. I wasn't actually as tuned in to, to the ones that you pointed out, so I'm, I'm glad that we have some some different ones here. I, I think the number one for me, uh, you mentioned Andor. That trailer yeah. looks sick. Go check that out. But Skeleton Crew, this yep. like uh, stand by me in space type uh, idea, especially because Skeleton Crew was the name of a Stephen King book that I think parts of Stand By Me were based off of as well mm. as another uh, King novella. So it, it'd be pretty cool if if they're gonna basically like adapt something yeah. along those lines for space. And Jude Law is attached to this, right? This is, so this is the series that John Watts is involved in, basically leaving the Marvel Fantastic Four reboot 
in favor of this. So still saying in the Disney family at the end of the day. But yeah, Jude Law, who come to think of it, kind of has a uh, trooper look to him, if you think about it. We'll see. And yeah, based around kids, like Space Goonies is how I was heard it being described. So you don't really know too much more about that beyond um, it's taking place during the Mandalorian time, time frame. It's basically all we know. But yeah, um, sounds, sounds fun. Sounds great. And sounds like something, even though it's a familiar time frame, something that is uh, Skywalker independent, which is, of course, well, welcome. And we're expecting to have more things along those lines in the future, of course. Um, yeah, def- definitely uh, looking forward to that. And the announcement kind of came out of uh, came out of nowhere. Like I wasn't expecting this to be uh, a show they they threw yeah. out there. But um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Are are you are you thinking that Jude Law is going to be some sort of big bad in this series? Yeah. I, I've heard Thrawn thrown out there, and I'm like, no, is Jude Law is Thrawn really? They're not burning Thrawn in this show. Thrawn's in the Ahsoka show. Um, and I think the rumor is he's playing by being played by Mads Mikkelsen's brother Lars Mikkelsen, who voiced him in Rebels. So, mm. yeah, no, I, I I think he'll probably be a new character, or a tangential character, or something. But that's probably a show that's a bit more smaller stakes too, which is honestly no problem. It'll probably be a lot of fun, but also of a kind of a different tone, perhaps, which sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I I I agree with you. I don't think he's going to be thrown. Although I've heard some some ringer personalities who are very much hoping so shout out Mallory Rubin um you know another piece of news that came out of um Star Wars Celebration this weekend I thought was pretty interesting at least like in terms of the Mandalorian and where it's going they didn't really basically John Favreau said he has an idea of where the show is going to eventually land like where Mm -hmm. it ends and that actually gives me a lot of hope for the show because I think uh with something as beloved as the Mandalorian also something that uh you know it's going on season three uh it just had season two and a half pass by and was really the only redeeming part of Boba Fett go check out that review um it needs to continue to be good I I need it to continue to be good and I feel Mm. a lot better knowing that they have an end point to this because that makes me feel like they even if they don't have all the story written at this point they at least have an idea of where it's going to eventually go. So I, that made me feel pretty optimistic. Favreau's got mm. his finger on the pulse. Um, trust in, in him and Filoni. Yeah, for sure. to- totally, totally. Um, having a plan uh, with Star Wars is uh, is a great feeling to have after yeah. how the movies ended up being for the most part. Uh, another thing I'm really excited to check out, which we is, seems to be pretty far in the future, or at least not till next year, is uh, the Young Jedi Adventures series they announced, which is set in the High Republic era. So uh, it's like 100 year range before Phantom Menace. So well, well in the past, as far as the Star Wars movies are concerned. And this is centered around some younglings at the Jedi Temple. We're going to see like Jedi Academy stuff, like little mm-hmm. little Jedi, little little Jedi kid kids uh, going through it, getting the training on. And of course, all the other things apply. The Jedi in their prime, the Republic in its prime. Uh, a lot of things that are very exciting to fans of the Knights of the Old Republic time and the Old Republic uh, setting and stuff like that. I think that has great potential and yeah. perhaps would tie into the Leslie Headland Acolyte series that we didn't hear anything new about, but of course is also set in the High Republic time. And uh, yeah, that just sounds really exciting. And I think yeah. just being in that time frame, which is unexplored on the screen to this point, was of course very appealing. 
Absolutely. That one's a, a great one. I wanted to ask what your temperature was on the, the new video game that was announced. Right. So Star Wars Jedi Survivor, the sequel to Jedi Fallen Order, the 2019 game from uh, Respawn. Uh, we got the tr- uh, just a, a CGI trailer, no gameplay. And that game is coming out uh, early 2023 is the expectation. So a little over three years since the last game, which was December 2019. Uh, very exciting because that, that first game was fucking awesome. And honestly, um, I would not be shocked to see the main protagonist of uh, those games, Cal Kestis, played by Cameron Monaghan. I would not be surprised if we saw Cal Kestis, who is a uh, survivor of Order 66 himself as a Jedi Padawan. Would not be shocked if we see him eventually cross over onto the screen in some way as well. So those games are, in all else, probably priming us for more of him. And if you're watching Obi-Wan, which why would you not be? You've been exposed to the Inquisitors, who also have their run-ins with Cal Kestis in the games. So yeah, that trailer definitely pre- presented a lot of uh, questions about who, who we're seeing, particularly that character in the back of the tank. A lot of questions, a lot of theorizing right now. But regardless, I'm really excited because not only was the game's story really great, but I mean, it's amazing gameplay. It's my second favorite Star Wars game ever. So we're getting wow. a sequel to it. That's great. What is number one for you? Knights of the Republic, of course. Yeah. So, you know, it's my favorite Star Wars game since, you know, 2003. So it's been a long time. High praise, high praise. Anything else from Star Wars Celebration? Or are you ready to move forward? I would just say it's notable that we didn't get any Star Wars movie news. That was something definitely up in the air. Um, we had a lot of Vanity Fair coverage around Kenobi, which is... Uh, tradition around the Star Wars movies. Of course, we had uh, Annie Leibovitz sharing more of those awesome f- photographs she's done across Star Wars releases. They talked about the movies in that, Kathleen Kennedy did, and I thought, it was, I guess it was a bit noteworthy that she still said that the X- X-Wing movie with Patty Jenkins is still happening. And she also said that Ryan Johnson's trilogy is still happening. It's just way down the line because he's prioritizing Knives Out with Netflix. So I was like, okay, that's something. That, that, that's something at least but yeah i mean it sounds like the taika waititi star wars movie has to shoot this year to make that december 2023 date they picked so i don't think that's even happening so the movies yeah, are no. still a still a ways out but like we just said before get your plan no, no need to rush the tv and disney plus are keeping us keeping us uh afloat uh more than more than enough right now so yeah, no I totally agree. It's all about the the small screen right now. So, uh, Star Wars Celebration always noteworthy, always fun to check out. All right, Dave, let's move on to some music. And uh, I'm about to uh, hello fellow kids, everybody, because uh, we're talking Tate McRae today, a artist that I was very much not aware of until this album. Um, and then I started doing a little bit of digging, and she's huge. Like. <laughs> absolutely uh got some huge hits on spotify um you broke me first from 2020 has almost a billion a billion with a b plays she's she's enormous how have i not heard of her it's a good question um i was only tangentially aware of her the past few years i mean she's only now uh, 18 so she blew up as a teenager uh I believe she actually she's from Canada. She blew up by being on So You Think You Can Dance. And then some of her music work got discovered by RCA Records. And that's kind of what led up to these two EPs that have come out to this point of which uh, 
you broke me first was you know a part of and seems to be uh the latest addition to this that TikTok uh female R&B slash alt pop uh, lane you know uh, mm-hmm. and clearly the numbers are backing that up she is getting uh getting that attention and certainly getting that uh promotion as well from the label but now you have at last the debut album I used to think I could fly and didn't really know what to expect going into this because it's not like I was a huge listener of hers I was just kind of aware tangentially of the hype of the attention of the uh, industry push and I think if you look at the track list for this album it's truly a who's who of in-demand producers Mm. Charlie Puth Phineas Kinetics Greg Kirsten Louis Bell Omer Fetty, these are top tier people. So she is working with the best and clearly trying to, her team and her team are trying to put her best foot forward for this. But that begs the question Pat, did you think I used to think I could fly was a worthy uh, debut album for someone that already is being uh, bestowed a lot of uh, attention? At times. And I know I'm hedging a little bit there, but there were definitely moments where I was like, ah, ah, this is pretty good. I, I, I like this. And then there were other times where I was like, man, skip next. Get me on to the next track. And it's funny because I think when she is at her strongest on this album is when she's either really biting the Olivia Rodrigo lane <laughs> or has like this like a little bit of like Ellie Goulding-ish to her Ooh. voice sometimes. So I'm like, oh, Ooh, maybe there's a little something there. But there's other moments when she goes for this very like like stripped back, like sleepy real singer-songwriter yeah. lane that I just did not jive with as much. But I'm sure a lot of a lot of her fans will because I think it kind of probably hits for a younger teenager vibe more than maybe what yeah. i'm looking for so I, I think this is going to be obviously super successful some of these tracks already have like a hundred thousand plays on them which is crazy but did you did you how did you feel about the album yeah kind of again like you i'm a bit of two minds i think and i expect this to be successful i'm curious to see exactly how successful it is she is on has been on a successful tour to this point so she, it's not that she doesn't have fans but i want to see exactly how big that's uh, that fandom is because I think it's pretty clear that when you have TikTok and playlist pushed streaming numbers, that's not always going to translate to like true record sales. We've seen that time and time and again. So we'll see exactly how big an artist she truly is in time, but she's certainly well on her way. I think for me, I was a bit, uh, I think I was a bit let down by her performance often on this album. I just think she's vocally a bit uninteresting or unimpressive a lot of the time, which is not, uh, not where you want to be, you know, I think, um, like, kind of as you put it, you know, it, 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 she's not doing something that far off from Billie Eilish from mm. song to song on here. I just don't think she's doing it in an as compelling way. And I don't think she's doing enough to not invite these kind of obvious comparisons to her bigger peers, because I, I just don't really know what her sound exactly is at this point. It's kind of more of that, like, stereotypical, you know, that TikTok r&b pop that we kind of already think of in our heads i don't know if i'm really hearing like a personal spin at least not a compelling one yet so uh i think especially the ballad stuff the 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 more slower stuff is particularly sleepy because of the performance on those tracks but the more upbeat stuff is at least more interesting more fun and probably 
fits best with her working with these team of songwriters that can really help make these great hooks that just make the songs uh, catchy and more upbeat. Yeah, uh, I think there's a clear standout that kind of makes your point, and that's She's All I Want to Be. That track was by far my favorite one. Um, and I think the interesting thing about it in terms of that performance you talked about, it's probably one of the least rangy performances on the album. You know, a lot of the ballads, she's at least like trying to hit a higher range, but She's All I Want to Be is very much like kind of right down the middle. But it's that like 80s pop rock vibe that just is yep. so popular right now and it just sounds i think really wonderful also uh, a kirsten produced joint so you know you kind of expect that it's going to sound pretty good um a few tracks earlier chaotic which i think was like the first single off that that's those moments when i can hear a little bit of that like ellie golding like type <laughs> vocal performance you know where it's like this like there's like this like wobble in, when she's in the low range it's almost kind of like I don't know if it's smoky is the right way. I'm not even sure exactly how to describe it, but there's something just unique about it, which I think gives me a little hope that she could have better performances down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of moments like um, Hate Myself was a track that I I think will probably do well for teenagers who are going through it, kind of like her, you know, her first uh, breakthrough hit right. Um uh, sorry, you I'm forgetting. You broke me first. Yeah, you broke me first, which I think is totally in line with what her fans want, but just not something I find myself uh, totally yeah. jiving with. What about you? Any tracks that stood out, or you know, for good or bad reasons? Yeah, I think just another notable song would be the really the first track, uh, first proper track, "Don't Come Back," just because I think that uh, the the hook interpolates Nelly's "Ride with Me" kind of obvious there, but. I really like how it fits with the production, the way the bass kind of like kicks in on the hook on that. I think it, it does kind of fit her more lower range vocal palette that she seems to settle in it, settle in on most of her songs. So that one I thought was at least the most engaging to me. But like I said, a lot of the a lot of the more ballady stuff I thought was uh, unfortunately a bit sleepy. So uh, more than anything, I'm just curious to see exactly how big this album ends up being like I said, and just what kind of career uh, she does have. Because to, to your point, I think there is room for someone to sound like Ellie Goulding right now. There's certainly a, a, a lane for that. Let's just see if she makes the right records to really take that lane and commit to that lane. Because right now it does sound like she's a bit uh, non-committal to what kind of sound she's truly like honing in on. And that's totally fine. Again, she's 18 years old. It's no big deal. But yeah. Uh, Curious to see what uh, the future holds, at the very least. Definitely. The other track I just want to shout out was You Are So Cool. It's a little bit like stickier, poppier. Um, really thought that was probably like this my second favorite track on the album. Um, I, I When I was listening to her, I was like, you know what she needs? She needs like a, one of those like just dynamite hits with like a famous EDM artist. She needs like Zed to like put mm. her on a track. And I think that could really like push her into the stratosphere yeah, so yeah it's a good call and i could definitely see it happening too she kind of has that like perfect voice for like a, a house uh, right kygo selena so. type track or something yeah exactly so uh we'll be putting probably one of her tracks onto our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist so again check that out on spotify Dave, let's move on to netflix where norm mcdonald had a secret special that he recorded before his passing that dropped last night on Netflix. And it's pretty unique because this is completely 
done without an audience. Just him talking into the camera, kind of like you and I are doing right now, but no one on the other end laughing or giving him any feedback. And uh, it was really interesting uh, to watch a stand-up performance this way. I have a, I have some thoughts about it, some moments that I stood out, and some that were maybe didn't work as well for me. But just overall, what was your experience hearing about this and then watching it? Yeah, well, when I heard about it, I thought, oh, wow, that is that is very interesting just for the sake that, that this exists, this nothing special final comedy special from Norm that, you know, he, he died uh, September of last year. And to get something like this, something uh, as polished as he wanted it to be, you know, out in existence, in terms of a posthumous release, it, it feels very meaningful and, and rare. So definitely was excited just to see what it was. And then to also uh, grapple with it as a artifact of the the pandemic. You know, he made this in 2020 and he's literally talking to, to the webcam, as you say, out of necessity. And I think kind of like the, the double-edged sword of the necessity being the pandemic, but also the necessity being his uh, descending uh, personal health conditions that he was well aware of and he felt the, compelled to create something even in this unrefined manner. So uh, definitely interesting to, to think about. And I, it, it wasn't lost on me that on the day that this uh, final special from Norm MacDonald comes out, Bo Burnham shares a one-hour compilation of his inside outtakes mm -hmm. that he had recorded. And of course, Bo Burnham's inside famous hit for this very same reason, a self-contained shot at home uh, special of one, you know? But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say I was the biggest Norm MacDonald fan. I think for the most part, his fame is just a little bit before my time, to be honest. Um, I was really more aware of him just for his SNL exploits after the fact. Of course, he is a storied and quite varied comedy career it's not like he was a hard stand-up special guy even if he was a frequent uh comedy performer um but definitely interesting to to get something like this out you know yeah definitely and um you know i think the thing that i was just most struck by is um in in if you watch on Netflix after the standup finishes, there's a group of, of his friends who are famous comic people, David Letterman, Adam Sandler, David Spade, uh, Molly Shannon, Dave Chappelle, a couple of very famous and, uh, people. Conan as well. Yeah. And Conan all sitting down and talking about um, their, their thoughts about the performance and just kind of Norm's life in general. Um, and I just was struck by like how he was able to kind of work, through this without any crowd reaction it just was like he knew the beats he was that like polished of a performer and then hearing you know as a story from adam sandler where he he was like a, an offhanded comment where he's like i have like a solid eight hours now you know like this guy was just like obviously a comedic genius someone that was like professionals professional one of a kind and uh you know it really kind of makes you wonder like you watch this as you know basically like a zoom comedy uh, yeah. event and you're you're like ah, some moments probably made you laugh and some probably just felt totally flat I wonder how it would have been with a live audience to like see how this landed was kind of where I was left sitting with it yeah I totally agree you know and I think to his credit and I think all, all his friends kind of chimed in on this and backed this up at the end it seemed like there were definitely moments where he would kind of make offhanded references or modulate his voice or create fake distractions whatever he could to kind of uh, simulate 
or the audience not being there, yeah. or at least change up the the pace and rhythm of comedy special, which is usually a bit more uh, predictable and familiar when it's in front of a live audience, of course. Were there any jokes from the special that really stood out to you, made you, you chuckle? Yeah, there was a few that I, I did laugh about. I thought the comment about the uh, life jackets versus just the, 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 I don't know, I don't need to buy a boat. I just get a fleet of sea cushions uh, from the airplane <laughs> uh, made me laugh. The the bit about the doctor and the knee hammer, that was pretty mm-hmm. funny. Uh, I think his most poignant comment, honestly, was about comedians being called modern day philosophers, yeah. which is kind of this real overdone thing people talk about stand-up comics whenever there's backlash or culture war comments which is frequent these days right mm-hmm. and just to hear norm kind of matter of factly being like yeah i mean I-, I wonder how that makes the actual philosophers feel <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're figuring out their philosophy and be like oh so and so is supposed to be pretty funny how about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I-, I really liked that as well um a couple of, of jokes that really stood out to me i, I liked uh this one made me laugh the most when he was like, my wife is so dumb. You know, should, you know, do you guys know what a hall pass is? Like we each get to pick one person we can sleep with. I said, Angelina Jolie is mine. She chose the Mexican guy that mows our lawn. What an idiot. Like <laughs> I just was dying laughing. And of course he has like classic norm delivery that I could never uh, mimic and, and replicate, but it's just so perfectly right. said. And I also, uh, one of his friends at the end says that that was completely, completely made up in the fact that you didn't have a wife by <laughs> yeah. that name yeah um and then it, me and a couple others that like stood out um you know him talking at the beginning about like being a degenerate gambler and how they would pay him in chips and sometimes they would break in half like just like that like stupid norm mcdonald like mindset where it's like taking something and pulling it all the way to like the fourth degree and you're just like lost even where it began at some point right um, what was i talking about again yeah, yeah. Well, along those lines, I loved how he was like, you know, I like to lose my money and I'm going to lose my money. I like to lose my money at uh, Indian casinos. I'd like to pay my reparations to the Native Americans. I don't want to lose my money to the corporate people in Vegas. (laughs) Oh, man. And I also really liked what he was saying about um, racism. Uh, you know, he was like the scuttlehead thing where he's like, sometimes they say stuff that like, oh, those scuttleheads and I look it up and I don't know what he's what they're talking about and no one knows. And sometimes you just get so lost in the sauce. I thought that was pretty funny. And also like two other, two other lines like that really got me. I wanted to shout out the one where he was talking about like someone saying, hey, do you, do you read my, my research paper? And he's like, I don't know how to break it to you. I have one life. I'm not going to spend it reading your, your research paper or something like that. It's like my doctor said I have pages. one life. So not going to happen. <laughs> great and then uh the guy who's like really really fat who's like could you believe at one point i was 185 pounds and he's like yeah i believe i believe you're every every weight up until you were <laughs> 585 pounds <laughs> he, yep. he just had like a way of things and i thought um i thought conan really summed it up well in, in the after thing where he was like norm would start he would plant a seed he'd walk you up the hill and around the barn and you go all this way and then you come back and the seed has fully grown you're like oh i totally forgot we even planted this seed by the time he's done telling the story but it makes all these like jokes hit so much for <laughs> so much harder so uh you know sad to to not get more norm but it's it's nice to have something like this as like a, a final goodbye yeah a- absolutely you know i think um we'll see exactly if this if this goes any further but he does make a a joke about about the trans community or trans people in some fashion towards the very beginning 
but I think it's how it differs than a lot of the more headline grabbing material more recently is that he's not doing it in like a mean spirited or like punching down kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's more in the spirit of comedy that the comedy purists love to uh, bandy about, but he's actually like doing that. And uh, it didn't come across as just like the blatant hack material that I feel like people argue about all the time these days. So that was um, uh, kind of surprising. You know, I think uh, really not out of character for him, I suppose. But I was like, oh, wow, we're getting, we're getting trans stuff already. How's this going to go? And I was like, oh, went, uh, went better than I thought. Not too bad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Norm MacDonald, RIP. Uh, definitely go check out this special if you're a comedy fan, Norm fan especially. So let's move on to Survivor, though, which wrapped up season 42 this past week of the, the new Survivor era. I think right. it's uh, safe to say the game is not going back. And I, I think I, I'm on board with this new era. I like I like the twist. Now that I kind of know the beats a little bit more, I think I could uh, enjoy the game a little bit. Right. Did you have the same experience? Yeah, I think that it, that's also, I think, important thing to think about with Survivor 42 shot back to back with Survivor 41, which was the first iteration of this new era. So all the contestants, of course, didn't know these twists that we as the audience were now familiar with from 41. And now when we see season 43, we'll be like in the next step of this new phase of Survivor because the producers will have learned lessons from 41 to 42 in terms of what is effective and what is less effective and things like that. So I'm, I'm even more curious to see what is that next step now, because you definitely feel like they will attempt to take a new step with uh, 43. But yes, I enjoyed 42 even more than 41, to be honest, because I thought it was even better casting. I thought 41 was a really good cast with a lot of people that you could definitely see coming back. And 42 really took that to the next level, because I just thought there were so many memorable characters. And even if there were some twists that I had literally just seen in the last season, I didn't mind because I just thought there were just so many characters I was interested in. And of course, the same uh, appeal of analyzing survivor gameplay and putting yourself on the island and in the shoes of various contestants and thinking about how you would handle a situation, uh, even with the benefit of being a, just a viewer, you know, all that, all that is still there, which is the core of survivor gameplay is what makes it, makes it so great and so fun to, dissect and think about that was also there too but i think the cast really took this one to the next level yeah who did you find yourself rooting for throughout the, the season yeah so that's a great question i think i think if you're really in the weeds with survivor you often will shift your allegiances and just start rooting for good gameplay and rooting for underdogs to survive and make it through and things like that that's just the most fun and interesting things to see happen so i honestly um, I found myself rooting for Jonathan a lot towards the beginning, just because one, it's really cool to see a true challenge be succeed, just because yeah. it is uncommon, but also new age survivor, the high survivor IQ of the average player these days, puts a huge target on the challenge beast. So I was like, how far can Jonathan actually survive? Now, right. some of his um, personality coming out in the later on being a bit, uh, uh, misogynistic in terms of what we saw in terms of how he uh, would interact with female people on the beach definitely makes him a less less interesting to root for but I just thought like as like a as like an archetype character I thought he was pretty uh, pretty compelling for a role that we've kind of written off like it's impossible for someone 
that physically dominant to win the show these days. And he didn't win, of course. So I guess that's still true. Yeah, I found myself rooting for Jonathan a lot. I was really frustrated by his inability to strategize and really like see the whole board. He really struggled in um, things outside of the, the challenges, you know, for building sure. relationships, strategizing, um, just not his forte. But I was I was rooting for him. Um, I definitely stopped rooting for him as much after his uh, uh, tribal with Drea and Marianne oh, yeah. after Roxbury was. Um, Voted out in the, the split yes. tribal. Making uh, it about him, have. which is brutal. Yeah, very brutal. I think he's someone that, if he comes back on the show, will probably have some sort of, like, uh, training, <laughs> you know, on how to, like, handle those sorts of situations more tactfully mm-hmm. on TV. At least I hope so. Um, I, I didn't find myself rooting for Mike very much. I found myself very, almost, like, annoyed by Mike's, like, strategy of, like, oh, I'm... <laughs> holier than thou type of thing i'm straightforward when i think the jury did a really good job of like putting the screws to him and actually yeah, made him they blasted his ass they, yeah. they 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 raked him over the coals and he couldn't handle it and that's a big part of why he didn't win and what's so funny about that is i think what the jury really wanted to hear was like mike kind of say like yeah i had to be like deceiving at times and like i did i wasn't always like straightforward with people but mike like, could not accept that about himself and so it really mm-hmm. opened the door for marianne who was probably the player that grew the most on me. After oh, the first absolutely. or two episodes, I was so annoyed by Marianne. I found her personality to just be very grating. She was like over the top all the time. And she grew on me, especially once I got to the merge. She really started to, I think, find her stride and uh, was really impressed by her growth. Totally. I think from the beginning, I was like, at the very least, Marianne, great casting, great for this show, this kind of personality, one of one. But it's just very memorable. Fits great for what kind of people you want on the show. They have to be interesting. They have to be fun to talk to and things like that, right? Yeah. And she had all that. But, I mean, really just to see her blossom at the very end, the way she really expertly explained why she deserved to win. And, of course, expertly timed alongside Mike being unable to explain why he deserved to win. Uh, I I think she's a very deserving winner. I agree. Yeah, and you know, um, was Lindsay the, the name of the other one, the final five? Uh, yeah, Lindsay. Yep, Lindsay, Romeo, Jonathan, Mike, Marianne, yeah. all them. R- Romeo I liked because he kept bringing it back to his at-home job of being a coach of pageant girls. Just, I just found it to be <laughs> so, so unique and interesting. But Lindsay, I think, ha- has real potential to come back and to potentially win the future out of everybody. I think she mm-hmm. is the most strategic and also, obviously, a challenged beast going toe-toe with Jonathan quite right. often so um yeah I, overall great season love where survivors going um just can't wait to see what they do with it next and uh out of the the two seasons i know you said that this season had more characters that you yeah. liked who was like your top three that you want to see come back for sure Ooh, from both or just this one yeah just the, the, the last two who do you want to see come back yeah. top three top three oh top three stuff I, I you know what Let's just go for it. Give me Jonathan from 42. Ooh. Give me Shan from Shan. 41. I think those are both pretty obvious. And there's so many I like, you know, I, I like Omer a lot from season 42. I, um, you know, in a sense, he, he was like Icarus. He flew a little too close to the sun. <laughs> he really started feeling himself. But at the end of the day, he had been really pulling off some moves in 42. And I thought he, it was definitely a good showing. And, you know, um, they voted him out because it was the right thing to do. Um, even like people that went kind of quick, like like Tori 
everyone hated Tori's guts. I was like, you know what? She wasn't that bad either. I, I could see her coming back. I could see Lydia, who just missed out on uh, the merge, coming back, stuff like that. Um, Man, I mean, I was really rooting for Xander through 41 yeah. a lot. I wouldn't mind seeing him come back. He's very young, like Marianne, so you could definitely see it. Um, uh, but I, I mean, tons say, of people, honestly, I, I, would, I, I would take back, really. My, my top three would... 100% are Ricard, yeah. Shan, and Lindsay. I, I really like Lindsay, and I think those three going toe-to-toe are just play the game at such a high level on all fronts. So would love to see who they bring back. I'm sure in a few seasons we'll have so many players that we want to see again. So. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting, I think, because the average player is just so much more advanced and thoughtful about what works, what doesn't work, how to succeed. And now you get everyone with, I mean, as all the veteran players, the past winners will talk about, it's so much different when you go back having already played and think about like Shan and Ricard or Omer, all these people that were super strategic and very effective at being strategic, but still didn't win. Mm-hmm. Just imagine like what they think about uh, if they ever were back, you know, like how much like more advanced they probably are about yeah. how, what they would and wouldn't do. It's just the, the possibilities are right there. Now, someone like Mike, who very much deserved to win this season, if he could just sell himself, if he owned it and was like, Hey, I ran the game. I was like Tony in season 40. I was the godfather. If he had owned it, he would have won. And that is a strategy style of gameplay that has been rewarded tremendously by juries recently. So do you definitely want to see him come back? I don't know because we, I don't know if he would change it up this much. I feel like if you returning players need to have like some like really like like flashy thing, whether it's really good strategy or really good like challenge play. Yeah. And all the people we've just talked about are at least giving you one, if not both of those. So um, maybe when do you think we'd get a returning season? Maybe, maybe they're going to do two more all new people. And then season 45 is a returning players. Mm-hmm. That sound right. Cause they, they shoot back to back in Fiji. They have this whole rhythm, the production now. So I think it's definitely far too soon to really expect anyone from these seasons to be back until, I mean, at the very earliest, probably the end of 2023, yeah, right? That's what that would set sense. us up for 45. So I think that's so. probably the time to watch, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I can't wait whenever it does come. Uh, Survivor's in a good place. I hope they keep uh, leaning into the, the diversity. I think that really adds a nice element to the show and makes it really interesting. And obviously, there's so many fans of it now. Everybody just knows the game in and out. Just makes it right. so much more fun. Yeah. I think the one, the one thing I would like them to eliminate was it was the do or die, which we talked about 41, just because I don't want anyone to ever be eliminated without actually have been voted off. Yeah. Like, like in such a manner, especially because that was strictly just chance. In this mm-hmm. case, Deshaun and Lindsay both survived the Monty Hall problem here. But like, uh, I just don't find that compelling. That just pure, pure luck. I think the coolest part about it this time was that almost everyone said, nah, I'm not taking that chance at competing in this challenge. And then we just had the Lindsay Jonathan head to head. That was probably the best part about it. And then I think we all were rooting for Lindsay to not go out in such a lame way. And thankfully she didn't. Yeah, no, I I agree. That would, that would be one thing I would change, but even that's just like a small nitpick for me. So, all right. Why don't we move on to Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, mini series, TV series dropping this past friday a little bit yeah. early um which uh, i don't know i didn't watch it early but people were very <laughs> excited about that um, if you're on the west coast it was probably more advantageous 
Yeah. It, it's interesting because uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is <sighs> coming at a, a I don't want to say like a strange time, but like, I, I don't really, I, I didn't really feel super excited for this show. I, wow. I don't know why. Going I, on a limb there, my guy. This is where the fun think, begins. What are you talking about? I, I think for me, I was like, I didn't really love the prequels. You know, there's some moments that are, are fun. Uh, mm. People definitely like it more than me. Uh, and I was just like, do we, what is this show going to be? I really did not know what, what to expect. And so for me, I was like, all right, uh, let's let's see what, what they got here. And I'm wondering for you, someone that was more excited, did you feel like these first two episodes kept you hyped and really delivered on what you were looking for? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting elements about this, specifically depending on what kind of Star Wars fan you are. Like you said, this is, on the surface, a return to some stuff that is, um, plenty of people are probably not super enthused to return to, namely uh, direct connections to the prequels. Obviously, now we're setting this 10 years after Avengers of the Sith, nine years before New Hope, so basically the middle of uh, Obi-Wan's exile on, self-imposed exile on Tatooine. But that means we're returning to Tatooine. We were just there at the Book of Boba Fett. And in general, it's a place that I think Star Wars fans would be happy to uh, leave eventually, just because we've told a lot of stories on, on Tatooine. And, you know, if we're going to leave the Skywalker saga, let's also probably leave, leave Tatooine, at least uh, not be there nearly as much as we are now. I think, thankfully, they uh, at least took, took Obi-Wan off-world very quickly during this premiere mm-hmm. episode too, going to Dayu, which I thought was a ni- nice choice. And we also have some unexpected time spent on Alderaan as well. But uh, yeah, I think you're presenting an interesting problem with a show like this. It's very different than The Mandalorian where you're meeting all these new characters. And even if you're you know, Clone Wars hardcore fan, you already know who Bo-Katan is, you already know who Ahsoka is. You're still introducing a lot of core characters that you don't really know about and like, you know, the Grogu and Din, they're just unknowns, right? With Obi-Wan Kenobi, we know the fate of basically everyone in the mix here, right? Uncle Owen, Hamburu, Obi-Wan, Luke, Darth Vader. If Palpatine was involved, him as well. You know, we, we know all this shit. Uh, if Jabba the Hutt uh, showed up, we know what happens then, right? Uh, and also, I think through this premiere, we very quickly run through some of those newer cast members that we... Uh, or were interested in because they were new characters, namely uh, Benny Safdie as a uh, survivor, Jedi survivor, Padawan. And even though he didn't die, Kumail Nanjiani's character as like the Jedi for hire, fake fake Jedi guy, uh, we want to leaving him. I don't think we're going to be going back back to see him again, right? So it's a bit a bit, uh, bit interesting to see see what's next. But I think there's you know for prequel fans very appealing to see Ewan McGregor back in the flesh as Obi-Wan because he's widely celebrated as the best aspect of the prequel films, his portrayal of Obi-Wan. But also, I'm pretty excited to see Hayden Christensen back in the fold yes. as Darth Vader, albeit very uh, deformed as he is, uh, just because I'm just kind of happy in a meta sense for Hayden Christensen to really come back and feel the love. And he really did feel the love at Star Wars Celebration this past weekend. Um, just because Hayden caught a lot of flack for the prequels, part because his performance wasn't very good, but also George Lucas didn't exactly set him up to be that successful either. And his career didn't exactly probably go the way people thought it would after that. Um, so just seeing him come back and seeing 
what exactly is going to happen between these two. Something we didn't think Obi-Wan and Vader met during this time. What is what is Darth Vader's line on the Death Star in, in The New Hope? When I left you, I was but the learner, but now I am the master. Hmm, we thought left you meant when he was left on the uh, fires of Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith. I didn't know you meant uh, left him somewhere else during this show, but apparently that's where we're going. So a lot of interesting things to ponder, even if, yes, we know what happens to Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, and it's not going to happen in this show. Yeah, they, there's definitely a lot that they're going to have to, like, re-explain, basically. Um, you know, especially because, like, if... If whenever they meet and they they do, you have to imagine he would continue hunting for him. He doesn't, you know, think to go to where Luke's uncle and, and where his son's, you know, or where his brother lives. Like I don't know. There's a lot of things I'm like curious how they explain away things. But you you mentioned those those people that were kind of we we move through quick in terms of the new characters. What about Rupert Friend, man? I mean, mm. you get the Grand Inquisitor, which I thought was pretty cool to see. I, although I didn't really love the way he looked um mm-hmm. i wish the makeup was a little different but rupert friend is like a fairly high profile casting for this and yep, certainly certainly for international fans episode two neva played by moses ingram great look for her shout out queen's gambit yep just uh just stabs right in the stomach the guy's the guy's gone as far as i right, know well we'll see that now that proposes the first thing to ponder because if you are a real one and have watched Star Wars Rebels, you of course already know who the Grand Inquisitor is. You also know who uh, I forget which guy, which brother he is, but the the Fifth one Sun Kang plays with the green skin, who we also saw a little bit here. We, we we are already familiar with these Inquisitors because we they're on Rebels. And also a spoiler alert: uh, I know when the Grand Inquisitor dies. It's on Star Wars Rebels. It ain't on this show. It sounds like he's not dead because they're not going to change canon like that. So I think what this is is Reva is just stabbed him got him got to get him out of the mix get him out of the story so that this is really going to be a reva obi-wan story that's what i think happened i think we're going to see a shot of the grand inquisitor in like heavy back to tank sitch you know um if darth maul can come back from being split in half i suppose a a shank to the abdomen can be survived as well but uh it it definitely it definitely made my draw drop i was like oh fuck that's not what i thought was about to happen (laughs) Yeah, and and to sure. to the layman who hasn't watched Star Wars Rebels, which is many people, they're like, "Huh, this is a brand new character I was just introduced to, mm. all over the marketing." Hmm, is he dead? I, I don't think he's actually dead, but I think it was kind of a sneaky way to get him out of the story because he already exists in the overall storytelling of this time frame in Star Wars. So we're going to focus on a brand new Inquisitor character, which of course is the third sister, aka third sister, aka Reva, and her interest in obi-wan which seems to be a bit more elevated beyond what anyone would expect i think there's another notable thing to ponder which is that reva knows that darth vader is anakin which is a not not common knowledge at this time as obi-wan's reaction would tell you so more questions about who reva is definitely come to mind and i expect we're going to find answers to all this because we know that we're going to see some vader action later too well, I assume she's one of the the kids from the, yeah. the Order 66 preview we get in the beginning, right? She's got to be. She's got to be, right? She probably saw Anakin cutting people down or something happened along those lines. Because how else would she have this information? She wasn't going to yeah. get it. The other Inquisitors don't know. Um, Vader is not going to tell her this shit, so it has to be something else. And I think that Order 66 was really cool just to 
just to see it again, just like when mm-hmm. we saw it on a Bad Batch as well with the flashback there. Just cool to see Order 66. So, so cinematic Legendary. in its tra- tragedy whenever you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you have to figure like that. That's what that's there for, right? Gotta be. Um, you know, so a couple of, of questions for you and just to like hear your, your temperature on some of these things. Was Obi-Wan always doing a, a Halston in, impression in the prequels? Because, man, there were moments when I, I swear he was slipping into Halston. And I was like, uh, I think I think McGregor here is getting a little mixed up in terms of what role he's playing. Um, that's funny. But I, I think more so just like he's become this like, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't want to put it this way, but it's kind of like this like weak old man kind of like he's just yeah. kind of like shriveling in in this role. And I, I don't know if that totally makes sense. Like he's the one who's supposed to train Luke eventually. And he's just like, well, if you if you think about it, think about how it's originally presented. And now it's fleshed out over time. Obi-Wan just in exile for, you know, was it 18, 19 years, whatever it is, just kind of watching over Luke and getting old. He doesn't do any training with him until we see him them meet for the first time in A New Hope. So the, the fact that he would be um, turn, turned off, his connection to the Force is a bit uh, rusty and turned off due to his own um, desire to go off the grid, both spiritually and literally. Um, that, that tracks with me. It really does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they openly foreshadow what many fans were eagerly anticipating, which would be to see Obi-Wan directly commune with Qui-Gon's Force Ghost, something, of course, that was directly teased at the end of Revenge of the Sith, of course, and um, we basically see how Obi-Wan would pick up from Qui-Gon how exactly to become a Force Ghost later on, when, of course, we see him talk to Luke. Uh, That'd be very exciting to see Qui-Gon, Liam Neeson return as Qui-Gon, for sure. But yeah, I think think it all really makes sense that he's... uh, a bit out of the loop. I mean, his his re his uh, reaction to Benny Safdie's character, a mm-hmm. fellow fellow Jedi survivor who had made it a long time nine uh, was ten ten years in the game, didn't want to help him at all. He was that focused mm-hmm. on Luke. Now, I think the <laughs> a funny thing that people have been talking about, which is not a problem that this show created, was that uh, they went to hide Luke with his little family. That was and didn't change his name. They were still calling him Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Now that, that's that's on George Lucas. That's not on this show, you know. Uh, but yes, that that that's kind of a funny, a funny plot hole that you know Leia was much more uh, effectively hidden. Let's put it that way. I also just gotta say, uh, Benny Safdie's character really—I uh, don't even know if he deserved to be trained after he sees these, the, you know, the Inquisitors coming. And it's just like openly doing this. I've been trying to like hide it or like be conspicuous. Like, I don't know. Bad, bad, There's a Padawan, bro. Only so much training. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like no common sense. Um, you know, I, I, I did see some criticism about people saying, oh, you know, you're taking this great character and made him weak. But I, I agree. I think, I think the story. Well, makes we're going to see him kick ass later. Yeah, like, for chill sure. out. Yeah, uh, for sure. I do think one thing that is becoming a little bit of a problem, and I don't expect it to go on throughout the whole thing, but this, uh, Star Wars really leans into this like adult protecting a child storyline. And yeah, obviously we get this with Leia. I think it's awesome to see Alderaan. I think it's awesome to see yeah. Leia. I think it's fun to see her be all sassy, and I think that totally obviously tracks with who Leia is as an adult. Um, so I love all that stuff, and I'm not complaining about it, but it just, just made me be like, ah, this feels a little familiar. 
I think right. we've seen this story a few times. Well, if you think about the the genesis of this series was originally one of the spin-off films. It's going to be directed by Stephen Daldry, lest we forget. And then after Solo went the way it did, they kind of pivoted to a series that was going to be written by Hossein Amini, who's still credited here. But then they did a complete rewrite on this series because it was almost too too familiar to the Din Grogu dynamic, the lone wolf and cub adult and protector adult protector situation as you just said now i think what the change is here is that i think leia is is, is going to be returned and not on the show for the majority of these upcoming episodes i don't think we're going to see too much more of that so it was like yes this is exactly something we've seen before but i think it's gonna kind of end and then we'll really see like what does reva and obi-wan and vader get up to yeah, but no. if, if that's exactly how it goes, I think it's a really fun, uh, you know, little little entry and way to get get Obi Wan off world, get him back in the swing of things, and an excuse for us to see Jimmy Smith's uh, bail again, because yeah. why not? Yeah, no, I I agree. That's why I said I don't expect it to be something that's ongoing mm-hmm. for uh, the series, but you know, we'll, we'll we'll keep our finger on the pulse. I mean, tell me what other things really worked for you or maybe things that you didn't like so much about these first two episodes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I thought going, going to die was, was pretty cool. I thought that world building was, was nice. Again, change of pace from Tatooine, but you know, right off the bat, when you see like an old clone panhandling, that was pretty, pretty cool to more Morrison all in makeup too. But then, like you know, towards the end of that, like you see, like Reva, like like stooped on the on the ceiling, like in your on the on the, the rooftops in your background there. I just thought that was a pretty cool uh, setup for a new a new world, and I actually really enjoyed Kumail as this kind of guy being a fraud, being a fake Jedi, grifting people effectively, even if he is trying to or he is helping people. So where he is sending people, sending Leia and Obi Wan to help them escape. Another open question that we'll, of course, have answered uh, shortly. Uh, we have to figure, but yeah, I think um, I'm I'm excited to see uh, how they tell us things about what Reva's up to. Uh, Moses Ingram was getting a bit of flack, unfortunately, for the portrayal, which I didn't really get. I mean, I thought she was playing She's a fun. very cocky, confident person, mm-hmm. which totally tracks with and it, what what a rogue inquisitor would feel like and that's clearly what she is now so i really didn't get it that like now i saw some people saying that obi-wan chasing after leia in in the streets and running at half speed it felt like as if he was really chasing after his toddler or something i'm a bit more sympathetic to that as criticism but like i thought the reva stuff was pretty fun honestly and i mean um i like that them assumingly getting the grand inquisitor off the board is setting up her to be more or less unshackled from a plot perspective and then she can really uh you know deborah chow and everyone can really let the character flap her wings because it's not a character that has previous canon connections if you think about it first two episodes cover almost everything in the trailer we've seen basically everything in the trailer already so that's also pretty exciting yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. I think we're going to get some really awesome moments, like you mentioned, the Qui-Gon moment, the uh, Darth Vader-Ben uh, Kenobi duel again. There's going to be a lot of really right. fun stuff to come. So yeah. Honestly, I think one thing that, definitely not a guarantee, but I would love to see some kind of prequel flashback where you see Hayden in the in the true flesh 
and just like him and Obi-Wan just like having a scene or something. You know, I have like to imagine from, we get that too. I mean yeah. that would be awesome. Also for Hayden Christensen for sure. Um to really get something like that. And I think if that was to happen, it would only be like probably a brief bit of like one episode. It's not gonna get a lot of that, but that that would be pretty sick, honestly. Any any last thoughts? Or are you ready to move on to some other television? I would say I would say that visually I think the show still looks very impressive. This is notably not produced by Dave Filoni and John Favreau, like Mando, like Ahsoka will be, things like that. Uh, this is Deborah Chow and Ewan McGregor as like the key uh, EPs here, and I still still think it looks really awesome. And Lucasfilm is honestly cleaning Marvel's clock when it comes to the visuals on these Disney Plus series. I think it's pretty obvious. Totally agree. Um, Obi Wan Kenobi, check it out, and hopefully you also checked out season four of Stranger Things, which part one dropped this past weekend uh seven episodes and dave we got through it all and i gotta say i really enjoyed this addition to the stranger things world you know it's it's funny because uh season three did not land so well for me you can go back and check out that review but i think there's just like a lot of things about the plot that just become super complicated like even watching back the the preview to this season i was like what the hell happened yeah i didn't remember shit bro (laughs) me neither dude (laughs) me neither but i gotta say like i really like the direction that they've taken this season not only is it a bit darker a bit more mature which i think makes sense as these you know characters are teenagers but really like young adults at this point um but i also think it it does a pretty good job of passing the rock and, and kind of uh, allowing each group and each character to get a moment. Although I do think a problem is the cast is pretty bloated at this point. And so a lot of people need screen time and you, there are times when you're just away from certain characters for way too long. Um, overall though, I really enjoyed the part one of season four. What was your temperature on it though? Right. Well, I think the reason everyone gets a moment in this increasingly large somehow increasing in size cast is that all of the episodes of Stranger Things season four are dumb long. The average, no, sorry, the range is 63 to 98 minutes. Mm-hmm. This whole season, we know the lengths of the two episodes left to come out on July 1st. It's about like 13 hours. It's the longest season yet by a oh, healthy yeah. margin. And no wonder everyone gets a moment because there's so much time. There's so many moments. Yes, and I, absolutely. And I think it's just the Duffer brothers kind of have an unwillingness to write somebody out of the story. You know, they've had all of these characters have uh, succeed in one season or another. Mm-hmm. All of these performers, especially the, young, the younger ones, have all become very big stars off the back of the show. So you can understand why the Duffers have a connection and love for these characters i get it but they just really would rather someone do basically nothing on the show will Byers once again than like (laughs) you know just not really be involved that much so what happens is because then this cast is so big and everyone's all these kids are more famous than ever like you said they're young adults you can't actually get everyone on screen at the same time all that much so you just have to split people up anyway and as a result there's just going to be subplots that you're not as interested in or invested in due to what actually is happening or just which characters they actually are including so 
on the other hand, I'm still enjoying my time with it and looking forward to those final two episodes because it's just great to be back in Hawkins. I think this world is very well established and I do really enjoy all these performers really in these roles. And even if it's as bloated as the show's ever been, it's still a lot of fun. And I think a, a nice improvement would be that uh, Vecna is a much more compelling and effective villain than the Mind Flayer or Demogorgon were mm-hmm. in the past. It's not that the Upside Down is producing like classic 80s inspired villains. It's not. But I think Vecna is definitely an improvement and like the, the more obvious horror nods probably are helping in that regard. Yeah, and that, you know, this is this is full spoilers. So at this point, just kind of if you haven't watched and you just want to tune in to hear our general thoughts, I'd say tune out now and come back later. But I think one uh, played by uh, Jamie Campbell Bauer, who ends up being Vecna, I think he's absolutely fantastic. And um, you know, seeing the flashbacks and or I don't even know, can we call them flashbacks? Whatever, whatever Eleven is going through at the the facility with Brenner as he's kind of like making her relive these memories of, and these interactions mm-hmm. with one, seeing his like foreboding presence and just kind of telling that there's something off about him. But obviously with Eleven being in such a vulnerable state, makes sense that he would like prey on her as, as, you know, potential to like help him break out of this, like, uh, whatever it was that Brenner had put in him to like kind of manipulate his powers and I actually really thought like when Eleven takes the the metal thing out of him in the last episode and, and you or in episode seven and you kind of see him turn like actually start to like kill all the, the kids at the facility I thought that was actually pretty like horrifying and I, I think Vecna like you mentioned is a much more compelling villain and he does kind of have some of those elements of some of those uh obviously like the supernatural stuff, but like Freddy Krueger comes to mind as someone who kind of like goes into like your dreams, or, like your daydreams and is like putting you through these like hallucinations and these things that actually aren't happening and just really terrifying and feeling so trapped. I think that's pretty awesome. I really liked the episode telling of Vecna where um, the, the guy who bought the house, one's dad um, who went crazy and like cut his own eyes out, you know, um, uh, forgetting who uh, Sally Hawkins and whoever else goes to talk to him. But I really thought that was like super compelling to like see that story told in that flashback mm-hmm. form. Um, probably the stuff I liked the least in this season, which is funny because we're talking about all this new stuff. It's kind of like some of the, the retread stuff, you know, the stuff totally. with <sighs> stuff with Mike and Will, like tough, tough for me to like, yeah really dig into their relationship and it sucks too because like will like you mentioned is such a tough hang but i really think noah noah schnapp's like a pretty like good performer so i'm like i just want him to have a little more to do you know Noah schnapp's like a huge tiktok star now yeah. and famous person amongst his amongst his peers amongst gen z and yet he gets to do fucking nothing yeah. as will Byers for basically the second season in a row and they also don't have the willingness to commit to anything about his sexuality it's still unexplained it's still un unspoken upon which yeah. would be okay if he actually had i don't know something else meaningful to do but he doesn't um and yeah i think um it, it's just it's just it's just not 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 that fun you know i mean even like did you really think there was great mike wheeler stuff this time around mike is 
effectively the main character alongside Eleven. At least he was at one point. But like, not much going on for Mike either. I I do feel like the the scene where Mike and uh, Jane uh, have like their their argument, the, the adult argument. I actually thought that was like, oh, the, these two have grown very far as like actors. Like that was like a pretty compelling argument mm-hmm. scene between them. But yeah, no, Mike doesn't get a lot to do. I actually think the best Mike moment is actually a Dustin's girlfriend moment. You know, when <laughs> when she helps them figure out like or or get the whatever it is from, from the computer that they needed, it gets a little convoluted at points in the season in terms of plot mechanisms and MacGuffins. But I just thought that was like a really fun payoff. You know, this, this girlfriend that they thought Dustin was making up all of last season. <laughs> Dusty Bun. Yeah. And he's like super helpful here. I, th- I think that's great. All right. Um, well, also just know, very, in the very beginning, I thought it was super amusing that uh, she was helping Dustin or she was hacking in to the school mainframe to change Dustin's grades. I thought that was perfect. Amazing. Um, I, I actually think Dustin is by far the best hang in this whole thing. You know, it's good. Yeah, well, I think they, they've just continued something, whereas Dustin's uh, camaraderie rapport with uh, Steve Harrington, Gatton Matazaro, and Joe Curie just have great chemistry. It's awesome yeah. to just see them riff on each other. You know, the the older and younger kid uh, uh, dynamic. It, it, it's so fun. And yeah, I thought this was definitely... Um, a great, a great Dustin season, and I think Dustin is kind of blossomed mm-hmm. right here, whereas Mike is more off to the side. Which, as you know, in in the earlier seasons, Dustin was clearly on the side. Not not as much this case, and I think that it really just goes with the performance being being fun and Dustin making the most of his scenes. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think I think he's probably the most fun character to be with. Um, you know, a character that I didn't really love this season didn't really hit as well as it did last season for me was Maya Hawk's character as Robin huh. my Robin at times her quirkiness is really fun and at times I'm just kind of like you're just being quirky to be quirky um it feels a little bit overdone but um overall I I, I think everybody's used pretty well I, I wish Nancy Wheeler uh wasn't like <laughs> I wish the hairstyle wasn't so 80s because it feels like they really took Natalie Dyer, uh, Natalia Dyer, sorry. And they really almost like uglied her up for the season, which I mean, not, not that I need her to be like uh, super attractive on screen, you know, make the character look realistic or however you want to, but it just felt like it wasn't doing her any service. And uh, I I think she really got like uh, the short end of the stick with that. But overall, I think the season's fun. Honestly, I think it's a better season for Nancy. She was a bit of like a, Debbie Downer stick in the mud type character more recently. Yeah. So that's something at least. I don't know. I've kind of been off like the Jonathan wave for a bit now, too. I feel like just mm-hmm. the way Charlie Heaton plays him, it's just kind of a bit like one note the whole time. I like Maya Hawk as Robin uh, mm-hmm. more than you, but it's one of those things where it's like she didn't really need to be like on the main cast and just part of the gang now, but but she is. You yeah. know, they just keep adding, adding to this. Um, Shouts creates like time crunches. Yeah, sh- I just want to say shout out real quick to uh, Eduardo Franco as Argyle. Uh, amazing in this season, even if he's playing across from Jonathan, who is kind of one note. I do like the like Cheech and Chongness of it all, which mm-hmm. I think is great. Um, and the, so we, we got to just talk real quick before we move on about all the stuff with like the parents. And, you know, you have Hopper and in Russia, you know, as a prisoner and trying to break out. I think some of that stuff works. Like, I think it's really 
fun to see David Harbour just kind of getting to be the character he was in Black Widow and just like fucking mm. shit up at times and having these fights. Um, you know, I, I, he is obviously a really talented actor, and I think he delivers some of the emotional moments pretty well, but I just don't find myself as interested in the the adult stuff. Um, stuff like Yuri and, you know, when Nona Ryder's yeah. Joyce kind of getting taken hostage didn't really totally work for me, but it, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, well, I think that's another perfect example of the Duff for Brothers' unwillingness to let someone go. Hopper should have died at the end of season three. It dramatically would have been very effective. They set up all this grief for all the characters, but then they won't commit to it. And now we kind of spin our wheels getting Hopper back for no fucking reason, honestly. And I I love Winona Ryder as Joyce. I think Ryder's like, you know, subtle like comedy chops in the role are awesome. And even Brett Gelman is really fun to be with too. But like overall, just that that whole storyline is just just there because of the unwillingness to eliminate hop and i i I just don't find it as dramatically compelling as what would have happened if you had just gotten rid of the character so this just kind of feels like unnecessary now what we get as a result rob morgan as the new sheriff Mm -hmm. talk about overqualified (laughs) way overqualified (laughs) um yeah you know i i think there's some some good parts to it some bad parts to it but overall like you said i think it's just like nice to be back with these characters it's a fun hang um shout out to barb who gets to make a short appearance when uh vecna over uh right. takes over nancy's mind and is uh i was like oh, we got a barb moment that that's a nice little like i don't know fine point to like a mm-hmm. season one meme i, I thought so yeah we see some billy briefly as well Dacre montgomery the only character they, they could let go was billy yeah. Uh, make make sense of that to me also just you know i mean the the influences of the show the you know et of it all very obvious but i thought it was actually done very well how they play up the very real satanic panic of the 1980s mm-hmm. so that that was factored into the culture of the time in the story uh very effectively so uh, that was i cool. thought it was actually really funny though when um i forgot i forgot the the kid's name the one who's uh like Eddie? they're everybody's chasing yeah everybody's chasing after and he's he's with steve and he's like that was very uh ozzy of you this mm-hmm. you know talking about him like biting the bat's head and he's uh, steve has no idea what he's talking about he's like you know ozzy osbourne like black sabbath he's like he bit the head off a bat and he's like it's very metal and steve's like oh okay whatever but like it was just funny that like steve was not aware of that like that yeah. fear so i thought that was pretty good but um strange i, I can't wait to see how it, how it ends I, i'm i'm in right so also, just one one thing of note, of course, the season is not yet done. We're getting the last two episodes on July 1st. Very interesting decision by Netflix to do this, splitting up the season across two fiscal quarters, two Emmy years. And it seems like an effort to prevent churn, basically keeping people subscribed by not finishing the season. However, at the end of the day, I do support it because it's going to keep Stranger Things season four in the culture of conversation for a longer stretch of time than the full season binge model does. So I think that's a good lesson for Netflix to learn because it's more fun to not have to rush through everything and not know when where everyone is at when they're watching it. You know, obviously we prefer week to week, but and, and this season certainly would have supported week to week with these supersized episodes. But nonetheless, we'll be back uh, in just a few weeks. We'll be back for sure 
But Dave, let's uh, hop over from Netflix down to Baltimore for We Own This City, which wrapped up its season uh, on Monday, last night. Oh, man. <laughs> Wayne J- Happy Wayne Jenkins Day, motherfucker. Holy shit. May Sergeant. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, <laughs> man, what, what, a, what a great six weeks of television this was. That's, that's like really all I can say. You know, uh, this, this show has been dissected. It's, it's receiving a ton of praise. Um, you know, spiritual cousin, brother, whatever you want to say to The Wire, obviously, a, a Pelicanos and Simon production. But uh, it's just always impressive to see how these guys are able to make compelling television out of like pretty like straightforward police work. Obviously, a lot of the stuff that these people were doing is dramatic and interesting to watch and so it's kind of ripe to be made into something like this but they never shy away from getting into the nitty-gritty and they still somehow make it super compelling and um obviously when you have someone like Bernthal putting on the performance that he did it makes it a lot easier to have a, a show at this high of a level i bring it this high of a level but yeah i was just blown away by it what about you yeah oh obviously i loved it i think obviously much is about being made of Simon and Pelicanos returning to Baltimore, of course, the setting of The Wire. And because of that, it's a spiritual successor, a update, modern day update to that story and those themes. Honestly, though, it's very much in sync with Show Me a Hero, another Simon HBO series from uh, a few years back before uh, The Deuce came out. And I think that's chiefly because We Own the City is super concerned with the issues and failings of bureaucracy and institutional rot and how that can be just as dramatic as uh you know the comings and goings of law enforcement and whether that's being done in a legal and ethical manner of course so i think it was kind of cool to see this show honestly feel like a sequel to multiple simon series but You know, I think at the end of the day, it's just a really bleak look at something from people that really know what they're talking about. Of course, David Simon, a former reporter in Baltimore, a Baltimore native to this day. Um, And when you have just really compelling performances all up and down the cash sheet, no matter how big or small the role is, it's just really awesome to see all this play out and you know, in this case, it's based in reality. Almost all these characters are real people, and you can look up what happened to them. Even if you don't want to, if you if you don't make it to the end when they tell you what happened, uh, uh, it's just super super compelling to see corruption p- played out in such a explicit manner, but also not told in like a hokey or cartoonish way. These cops, these rogue cops in the Gun Trace Task Force that are uh, robbing average citizens and being criminals in their own regard they're not portrayed as cartoonish characters either you know i think everything handled here is done with a lot of tact and a lot of uh, a lot of subtlety even if it's all really matter of fact so i really enjoy the show yeah uh i think you, you summed it up really well I'm, i guess i'm wondering like i i think obviously Berenthal's performance is something to to celebrate i think he's just 
every time he's on a screen he's absolutely magnetic and the way that they kind of handle him you know they kind of give you like a little taste from him at the very beginning right but then he's kind of sidelined after that first episode for like the next two episodes you know he kind of pops up in like callbacks here and there but they're really kind of like just kind of laying out how this was already kind of going on when wayne jenkins came about but he kind of took it to this next level right. and he's kind of like Chris Ryan of The Ringer summed up as him being kind of kind of like Jaws in this show for a while. He's kind of just like in the background, you know, he's looming, but you don't know when he's going to pop up. And then he finally does, and you get that the the Freddie Gray episode, which is really right. like the Wayne Jenkins episode, and it's just, I mean that that's got to be the the Emmy reel right there for him. It's right. magnetic and stomach turning and upsetting, but also like you just you you somehow like like the character. It's really impressive what he does and even some of like the small things like um you know the ringer did a uh, interview with pelicanos and he was saying that uh calling people a dum-dum was something that wayne jenkins apparently actually did but pelicanos <laughs> wasn't aware of that it's just something that bernthal like did his research and spent time with cops that knew him and like really got the subtleties of the character right, right. and he said like these these aren't played up you 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 could say wayne jenkins is an outlandish character and how could that yeah. be real but it seems like performance is pretty close to real life it's really impressive yeah totally getting paid today motherfuckers <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, sorry just like on that point actually i know you specifically make a point but the way you see wayne jenkins code switching you know oh, between yeah. the the black uh cops and the the white cops that he works with um it's just really fascinating and bernthal kind of going back and forth between all these different worlds that wayne jenkins was gravitating between it's just it's impressive but please make make the point you're gonna make yeah no no no. i i i think it just it's a really compelling performance classic anti-hero bad guy performance uh definitely gonna be up there for the limited series actor emmy uh, which is of course is a very uh compelling and, and hard fought emmy race every year but i really hope hbo gets behind this performance it's super well deserved uh we'll, we'll see of course about that you know, I think the other key aspect, I think, to the show is you have the uh, Wunmi Mosaku character, Nicole Steele, from the Department of uh, Justice, which is a composite character, the real only character that's not a direct, you know, representation of a real person. And even if, like, some of her scenes, I think, are a bit, like, expository for the audience to try and, like, ground where parts of this show is taking place and try and educate people that maybe not aware of what's going on i think it's still really effective to see her disillusionment with what's going on as someone coming to baltimore to make this report and advocate for the consent decree and they show you the other side of this failing consistent failure of baltimore bureaucracy and then even on top of that the ticking time bomb that is the turnover that's going to happen in the department of justice when the Trump administration comes to power and the priorities of the Department of Justice and, and the wherewithal and all of that is completely going to be completely upended. So even though this show is super nonlinear, we're going back and forth across a few different years. I think they do a really good job of still keeping you uh, informed as the audience of what specific year we're in and why we're there. You know, I think uh, that the framing device of the uh, interviews with all the gun terrorist task force guys after they've been taken in does a really good job of fleshing out everything that happened with them but you really need the nicole Steele character i think to kind of 
advance you through the comings and goings in Baltimore across, you know, new mayorships uh, and uh, Freddie Gray happening and things like that. So it really honestly covers a lot of ground, even Mm -hmm. if at the end of the day, it doesn't exactly set you up in a, uh, you know, a happy place, but that's, it shouldn't because that's not the the conclusion. There, there's no happy place in real life with this story. Um, What other, what other performances really stood out to Mm. you? Yeah, great question. I think uh, I really enjoyed all the all the cops on both the good and the bad cops. Honestly, you had um, Josh Charles as Herschel. I thought was quite memorable. Um, some of the other guys on there were, were nice. Uh, McKinley Belker as G Money was good. Um, I think uh, on the other side, I think we had like Dave Cornsweet and Trey Cheney early on. I thought we were going to get more of them, but they actually kind of completely drop off the show to the very end. Um, and then we're, we're sticking more with uh, Dagmary Domanovic and some of the other people investigating the gun trace task force. So even if we, the people we are with kind of comes and goes, I think just really all the cop performances were, uh, were, were all really effective. Yeah, I agree. I think the one that probably stood out to me most was Jamie Hector as uh, Sean Suter. I think obviously right. also has the big like emotional ending as kind of like the um, how there's like a, real consequences for these people and and some of them were not uh you know some of them dealt with it in ways that maybe are not the way that you hope that they would or that they could you know found help in in some ways but i definitely feel like as someone that has like a pretty thankless role you know sean Suter is pretty mild-mannered from everything you see on the show and pretty you know within himself especially playing opposite of wayne jenkins in, in some scenes um I think he really drives some of the emotional heart of the show yeah. really well at the end. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think, I think everybody on this is really operating at right. a high level. I think it's really impressive. Um, you know, it's hard because when you have something this great, it's hard to like <laughs> talk about it. Cause you're just like, ah, everything was awesome. Like that's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not exciting. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, episode three, I thought was really important because that's where you have the one uh, scene where steel talks to the union and really shows the uh, unhelpfulness of the police union involved here, which doesn't sound that different from how people view most police unions these days. But Simon and Pelicanos, I think, still get that in just as they need to. But really, I think that probably the best the best thing they do with this show is explaining how the complete distrust in the institution established and reestablished over time by these cops has led to just a complete failure of the just the justice system in this city where they are unable to get juries because everyone has a bias and disposition against the police because of things that have directly affected them or people they know. And they take that a step further later on where they show a personal story of how these cops just taking money out of people's pockets and out of their cars and how they can fucking ruin people's lives due to their greed, you know? Uh, whether it's small scale or big scale, they just do a great job of showing how the repeated failings of something at a systemic level can affect both the system itself, but also individuals. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think they do that really well. Um, episode three and four are probably the, the two that stand out most in my mind, right? Because you, in episode three, you have the, like, the ridiculous stuff that Wayne Jenkins is is doing um you know you have like the moment with the the little person stripper you have 
um, him uh, fi get finding the safe full of like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of money and the way that they film it with the camera. Everybody stand back. We're going to do this one by the book. Uh, absolutely <laughs> like hilarious. I am um, a U.S. attorney. Oh, Is that how you talk to me? <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. In like a Baltimore <laughs> Orioles t-shirt or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Um, and then episode four, you get the Freddie Gray scene, which, you know, for mm -hmm. a, a David Simon uh, Pelicanos produced thing, that might be pound for pound like the best scene that they've ever been a part of um you know even like stuff at the wire probably never reached a, a 10 minute thing that that was at that level maybe kima getting shot in season one um but really great and i think ronaldo marcus green you know deserves oh, a yeah. lot of credit his his great. camera in this is amazing um the way that it, it is like tracked behind them a lot of the time and you really feel like you're like in these moments is just really impressive and uh yeah the uh, nothing about the show like there there was no missteps it feels like a pretty perfect uh, right. six episodes of television yeah and i think what's also like subtly really important about the freddie gray scene beyond its obvious cinematic appeal is that it does like a perfect job of showing to you why wayne jenkins yes. was like the superstar of this police department mm -hmm. and why everyone liked him and people aspire to work for him and with him because of how he felt about his fellow cops. And I really love it in the final episode where he's like adamant that he's not a dirty, a dirty cop. cop. Ridiculous. But you know, yeah. it's like, it's wild. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we own this city. I mean, it's, it's early, but I mean, I think we probably have three or four shows right now that all could be my top show of the year. This is That's a right. stacked TV year so far. So Gosh. can't wait for that end of year list for sure. Why don't we wrap up today, though, with Top Gun Maverick. This has been in production for like 12 years. We finally got it. <laughs> the need for speed does not translate to quick productions. Yeah, they started filming this in 2018, my guy. <laughs> and but it's, uh, it's finally out after several production and uh, COVID delays. Long was time it worth coming. wait for you, Dave? It was, yes. I, I, I'm not 36 years old, like... Uh, Top Gun one, but still excited to see something like this just because Tom Cruise has been operating at such a high level as like the last action hero that he views himself to be. Huge fan of the later Mission Impossible films that he's been spending most of his time with. And just to see him basically do that again in a certain sense. He's not Maverick isn't that exactly Ethan Hunt. But he's not that far off either. And just to get a sequel to a beloved American film like Tony Scott's Top Gun uh, and to get one that's this good. You know, Joseph Kaczynski, not the most famous director in the world, but very, very capable. And now we have uh, a Top Gun film that's not quite as coked out, not quite as uh, homoerotic as the original. But I'd say just as if not more compelling and fun and great cast once again. Like, yeah, I, I was excited for it. Didn't really know what to expect in terms of like overall quality. I was just really having like hope that it would be on level with these Mission Impossible films. And uh, I was really blown away by, by just how effective it is. And I'm very thrilled to see the movie be as successful at the box office as it is because, um, Definitely a long time coming, but I think a lot was riding on this for Cruise and Paramount. 
and man, I, I agree. I think they completely delivered. Um, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable that they were able to pull this off. Not only I think to make a really compelling action film in twenty twenty two that feels totally singular, but I mean I think they completely reinvented the way that um, any fighter pilot movie is ever going to be made. Uh, you know, my my first thought as I was preparing today, and we're you know we're talking Star Wars celebration, we're talking Obi Wan, is if the impending Rogue One, uh, you know, movie that is going to be made isn't shot similarly to this, where it's like in the cockpit and you like feel like you're like in there with them, like I, Rogue I, I don't Squadron, you mean? Yeah, right, Rogue yeah. Squadron. Sorry, thank you. Yeah, yeah. If if it's not shot like this, I don't want it. Like I I want it to be like this. I want to. I want to relive these action experiences again and again. It's that good. Yeah, I mean, much was made of Tom Cruise doing two-a-days for months to learn how to fly a helicopter to the level required for the ending of Mission Impossible Fallout. He basically took that up to 11 this time around by teaching himself and numerous cast members how to fly modern-day fighter jets because they got all this footage of them in the cockpits. Like you listen to Kaczynski talk about the logistical challenge that was making this movie where there's so many things to consider, not to mention pulling off all this actual choreography in the fucking sky, you know, like it's, it's really mind blowing from a production side of things, but uh, I mean, visually it's just, it's kind of mind blowing. And I really loved how it started too, where you have crews on part on one of those, like, um, top secret like uh advanced uh like bomber from lockheed martin which is bracing a bit of reality if you do some digging and i thought it was a great way to like set up the maverick character for anyone who maybe was just kind of going in blind to this film and watching him just like push the plane and push the plane until it literally splits at the seams and he (laughs) destroys this multi-million dollar aircraft in the sky because of his own need for speed i was like wow this is a great start and then once you really get the dogfighting scenes later on it's like wow yeah it, does, like, it doesn't matter to you that like the art of the dogfight the need for a dogfight in modern warfare is completely irrelevant obviously in the day of drones the movie's very aware of this of course you had the whole ed harris character about how and john ham as well it's like the future's coming maverick and you're not part of it <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh doesn't matter that like we really don't need to see like there's not like a need for this it doesn't matter because like the, the world that this movie exists in it's just it's just it's just so raw and so visceral and it looks so good yeah and you mentioned like the world it exists in because like you really don't have a sense of like when this is is this like present day is this futuristic you know there's there's a lot that like you don't know about the world but i definitely feel like it that's like a small detail that really doesn't matter because it's so fun to be in this world. And it has some great callbacks, like right even from the beginning, you know, you get Rooster played by Miles Teller banging on the piano at the bar, uh, singing the same song that his dad Goose sang in the first movie. Great balls of fire. Um, Just like absolutely like wonderful scene. You let Miles Teller just be like charismatic and like good looking and totally works. Um, It also kind of like, I think sets up the internal conflict for Maverick. You know, obviously people want him to retire and you know, move on from this world, and he hasn't moved up in the army the way he you know, he should have, quote unquote. Navy, um, but yeah, yeah, the Navy. Thank you. Uh, but it's it's 
like a, a great way to kind of like set it up. And then they're like, we're going to be like kind of worried about this. Like Miles Teller and uh, Tom Cruise are going to butt heads a few times and, you know, Maverick's not going to totally win him over at first, but that's not really what the movie is like about. It's just about kind of like these like really fun fighter jet scenes. Like you talked about, like, like the dog fights are like super compelling. The training is super compelling. And it's like, oh, yeah. it doesn't get too caught up in, in the person to person conflict, which is actually kind of like a nice respite for like an action film like this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's just as good as it needs to be, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the role, the role of goose's son, the role of rooster, hotly and uh desired by actors miles teller was alongside glenn powell and nicholas holt as the final three for this role glenn powell who's he said many times was super bummed to not get this role but then i think expertly cast by Cruz and hangman as hangman basically as this film's Iceman. i mean he he's no perfect as like the kind of like perfect you know but douchey guy like, yeah. like role it's just like Iceman it's great mm-hmm. yeah no I completely agree I think I think everybody in this is pretty perfectly cast like I, I loved the moment when they were going through all the call signs and like what's yours like Bob just Bob like oh that's, yeah. it's perfect for Lewis Pullman in that character because mm-hmm. he's like a little weirdo but it's, it works out great right um, right yeah and I think um you mentioned like we don't really know when this is taking place I think that really does well where they they don't we we don't know where this mission is. We don't know who the enemy is, and I'm really happy yeah. about that. In the times we live in, you know, we don't we don't need to go there. It doesn't matter, yeah, and I'm happy they don't. You know, uh, I know. I it was funny. I actually thought I had like missed it. And I, was, I was like doing research, like who is like the enemy? You know, like country. And I said yeah, they they never mentioned it. I like that. Great great choice. But, yeah, totally. And also, um, you know, I think in terms of, like in like char- character dynamics, they do a really good job of kind of setting up the conflict with Maverick and what his like final final hurrah is going to be in terms of preparing these already Top Gun graduates, the best of the best, preparing them for this like nearly impossible mission. Yep. And then it sets it up just well enough that we when we get Maverick to do the mission himself, it's like it's like you're just so pumped because like we had already yeah. seen Maverick back in the plane because he's doing the training with them, like hands-on training. What a great teacher! But then when you get to the point where he needs to actually fly the mission. It's like, fuck yes. Yeah. And I really didn't expect the final scene, the act three, the mission itself to be as like riveting as it ended up being, but I thought it was mm-hmm. uh, really compelling. Uh, also, I was a bit surprised to see the, uh, you know, the love interest for Maverick played by uh, Jennifer Connelly. I thought that stuff was actually a lot better than I thought. I think Connelly, it's, it's not like the deepest part by any means, but I thought she's still uh brought as much as she really could to a role like that yeah uh, i that that was kind of neither here nor there for me but yeah i, I thought it was fine that was like an interesting like addition to it all right um age appropriate casting as well yeah you mentioned the um like the final payoff right and how like maverick in that final mission gets his redemption by like sacrificing himself to save rooster and then rooster gets you know goes uh, like down after him and i love the scene where uh cruz is like running up to him and he just knocks him right over like a a laugh out loud moment because it it really it feels like uh like so pure kind of like what the hell are you doing is that how it's supposed to go like what a pure like meta moment i thought that was great I did what you told me to do. I didn't think. Yeah. 
fantastic <laughs> great great stuff and then i thought it had like a nice like i liked the old plane like having to escape back type of thing against like the mm-hmm. new planes thought that was just really like expertly done well written great final run hell yeah yeah man it's just uh it's great it, it's it's a real blast and it's really awesome to see just how largely older audiences have been turning out for this film opening weekend which was by far and away the biggest opening of tom cruise's career nearly double his previous high mark at the domestic level uh setting the new memorial day record as well 160.5 million that number went up several times as they kept finding more and more money after the estimates but 55 percent of people seeing this were over 35 38 percent over 45 18 percent over 55 the one thing we've been talking about with movies is that the older audiences have not been returning to the box office since the pandemic began. And we had seen that if the movie is right, people will show up, look no further than No Way Home. But the older audience has been that one last thing. Now, does this mean older audiences are just going to come back in droves? I don't necessarily think so. I think this was kind of the perfect film that older audiences were clearly hyped to see. But nonetheless, very awesome to see this also there's some great reporting in puck uh about how tom cruise negotiated this film for himself where he's probably in line to make about 50 million dollars from this movie due to his uh 10 of first dollar gross that he negotiated which is that's about on par for how much robert downey jr made for endgame these now exceedingly rare back-end participation deals at this level for uh, acting talent so Definitely cool to see, and that much is being said now about Tom Cruise being one of our last uh, our last movie stars. And I think uh, this movie also does a, a positive thing for me, which is get more people excited for the next Mission Impossible film, which has already received an early uh, trailer, uh, which is Mission Impossible 7. So very exciting. Also, we'll be looking to see Joseph Kaczynski in short order because he has a film on Netflix coming out. Uh, in just a few weeks called Spiderhead with Miles Teller and Chris Hemsworth. And then his film, next film after that is a film with Apple with Brad Pitt about Formula One. Sign me up. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I want to see it. Uh, Dave, I think that's going to wrap us up for this week. What do we got for next week? So next week, uh, another hotly anticipated show is returning. The Boys back on Amazon for the start of season three. Very exciting. We'll also talk about the end of Hack Season 2 on HBO Max and Under the Banner of Heaven with FX on Hulu. And then notable music drops, 070 Shake, very excited for that album. And uh, the return of everybody's favorite guy, Post Malone. Uh, Wonder what that's going to be like. Hit that subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod and follow our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. We'll catch you next week.